from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're going to talk about the way dolphins survive in captivity and the way humans make decisions based on the chemicals in their bodies. And if those two things don't seem very well connected, well, just wait. The marine mammal biologist and the experimental psychologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. For a long time, critics of keeping marine mammals in zoological facilities have argued that these animals simply don't live in captivity as long as they do in the wild. And while everyone's entitled to their opinions, and I'll argue that we should be very thoughtful about the ethics of keeping animals in captivity, none of us is entitled to our own facts. And when it comes to captive dolphin lifespans, it turns out there weren't any good facts. Our first guest is trying to change that. Our second guest is trying to change something, too. He wants you to think about the factors at play when it comes to impulse control. And if you think it's all mind over matter, well, you're in for a crazy half hour today. Joining us today from Grassy Key, Florida, is Kelly Yakula, the director of research at the Dolphin Research Center. Her recent study showed that dolphin lifespans in zoological facilities have caught up and may be exceeding those in the wild. Kelly, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks for having me. Also joining us from Texas Christian University is Jeff Gasson. He was the first author on a recent paper that describes how raised levels of inflammation in our bodies can make us more likely to focus on present rewards over delayed gratification. Jeff, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for having me. Let's start today by talking about... dolphins. According to new research in the journal Marine Mammal Science, bottlenose dolphins living in marine mammal facilities in the United States are living as long and perhaps even longer than dolphins in the wild. That's according to a study from my first guest, Kelly Yakala, who writes that survival rates and life expectancies are commonly agreed upon indicators for health and well-being for animals in zoological facilities. But Kelly, you also point out that the studies that we use to arrive at these conclusions that we've been talking about for a quarter century or longer are a quarter century old. And that's owing at least in part to the fact that there's really no such thing as a single wild population or a single zoo care population. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, when you're trying to compare any two groups, you want those groups to be as similar as possible and use the same methodologies if you can. With populations in the wild, there is no one the wild, right? There are different populations that have different health challenges, etc. And when you're talking about populations in human care, of course, around the world, not all animal welfare laws are the same. Not everybody has had dolphins in facilities for as long, etc. And so there's no one population there either. And to complicate matters further, of course, when you have dolphins in human care, you have a whole lot of information about them. You know when they were born, when they die, you know, you know what's going into their bodies, etc. You, you know these animals very well. In the wild, that's just not true. There are some good studies of wild dolphins, but the level of information you get just isn't the same. So finding ways to compare dolphins in human care and dolphins in the wild isn't quite as easy as as people might think. So to get at this, you looked at about 
40 years of data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association's Marine Mammal Inventory Report. And you determine that the median life expectancy of bottlenose dolphins is a little over 29 years. And importantly, it seems to be increasing over recent years. What do you think are the most important factors in that increase? Now, because I'm a scientist, I have to mark when I know the information and when I don't. So what I do know from this study is that uh, dolphin life expectancy and survival rates have increased significantly over the last 40 years in zoological facilities, specifically in the U.S. The reasons for that increase, I can only speculate. You know, 40, 50 years ago, most of the animals were collected from the wild. But in the U.S., no animal has been collected from the wild since 1989. And so nowadays, most of the dolphins were born in human care. And so that may be one difference. Another really big difference is, you know, way back when, when we were collecting them and when they were new to being in human care, they were new to being in human care. We didn't have other animals like that. And so we, as, you know, a community didn't understand their needs as well. We hadn't yet done the research to know their health challenges, etc. And so as we do that, we've consistently gotten better at knowing and meeting their needs. One of the key findings in this report was about median life expectancy. I'm wondering what we know about maximum life expectancy for dolphins. You know, I'm really glad you asked that because, first of all, I want to make sure that we're differentiating between those two things because most people don't necessarily separate those, and and it's really important. So when you're talking about maximum lifespan, you're talking about the oldest age that any animal in that population has lived. So by definition, that's not typical. Where you're talking about average life expectancy, you're talking about the average age that dolphins would be expected to live. So there's a big difference there. When we want to characterize a population, it makes much more sense, it's much more informative to talk about average life expectancy than maximum lifespan. Because again, maximum is by definition an outlier. What we know is there have been dolphins both in human care and in the wild that have lived up until their 60s. Not very many. That's an outlier type number, but that's what we know. You noted in your study that the data used to determine wild lifespans, it was pretty old as well. Some of it was collected well over 20 or 25 years ago. Would you like to see a renewed effort to understand how dolphins are doing in the same capacity in the wild? And what kind of effort would that take to get numbers like that? I would love to see data on as many populations as we can get. And ideally, using the same methodologies, because if different populations are assessed using different methodologies, then you really can't compare directly. So what we will find, though, however, you know, you talked about how in the populations that we looked at, which were the only populations that we could find with this kind of data, the data are old. What we know about those populations, though, in all of them is that unlike in human care, where the life expectancies are going up, the wild is having more and more and more challenges. So I I think it's very important to get data as much as we can from as many populations, both in the wild and human care, so that we can have more information in order to look at conservation and look at management decisions that we're going to make for all of these populations. The Marine Mammal Inventory Report, it includes dolphins, but it also has sea lions, orcas, seals. Your research wasn't about that, but I'm interested if you peeked at the data on those species as well. 
I did not. There was enough data for me to look at just with the dolphins that I haven't yet looked at the other ones as well. Now, you said yet. Is that the next line of research, or are you hoping to do something else? I mean, for me, I'm, my research, I mean, you and I have talked before, right? My research is about dolphins, and I look at their lifespan in this particular case, or life expectancy. Primarily, I look at dolphin cognition and behavior, so how they think, how they learn, the things that are in your new book, in fact. I appreciate the plug. <laughs> That's Kelly Yakala. Her new study in the journal Marine Mammal Science reveals that bottlenose dolphins living in marine mammal facilities in the United States may now be living as long and perhaps even longer than their wild counterparts. Kelly, there's someone I'd like to introduce you to. Can you hold the line for just a bit and listen in? Absolutely. But you just want that instant gratification. That is the singer-songwriter Miranda Glory singing about instant gratification. Now, the kind of gratification she's talking about in that song is not completely suitable for public radio, but it's a good starting place because what she's really talking about is a loss of control. And that's the concept at the heart of the research of my next guest. Jeff Gasson, before we get to this specific twist of your study, let's talk a little bit about impulsivity in broader terms. Why is this such an important subject for researchers? I think in a more modern culture where we're sort of just constantly barraged by opportunities for instant gratification, whether it be smoking and drinking and drugs, poor diet, just for example, excessive alcohol consumption and smoking are huge predictors of, of mortality rate and are taxing the healthcare system. At the core of all of those things is this sort of tendency to prefer immediate gratification or lack self-regulation or self-control. And so it's really just a kind of a wide-reaching topic that hits on a lot of different other subtopics. Now, we've seen in the past that all sorts of things influence impulsivity, but you and your team had an idea to test something that, it, well, at least as far as I know, hadn't been tested before. You wanted to look at how inflammation impacts impulsivity. So now I guess before we really get into that, we should probably talk a little bit about what inflammation is. Right. When the cells of your immune system detect infection or cellular damage, they release an array of signaling proteins, and uh, a subset of these proteins are called cytokines. And some of these cytokines are pro-inflammatory in that they facilitate the inflammatory response, and this sort of facilitates the delivery of white blood cells and different cellular factors into the area that's impacted. It also increases blood flow to areas like that, and so we've experienced this in our own lives acutely. If you get a cut on your arm, it gets red, blood flows to the area. And so when we measure inflammation in the lab, of course, we can't look at every tissue in the body. We can't take tissue samples of everything, especially in humans. But these cytokines, these pro-inflammatory cytokines, are good indicators of an ongoing immune response or an ongoing inflammatory response. So the more I thought about this, the more it really made sense to look at the interaction between these two things. But I guess I'd never thought about it. And it doesn't look like a whole lot of other people had either. So I'm wondering what made you wake up one day and say, oh, you know what? I'll bet there's a correlation between inflammation and impulse control. Right. Yeah. So this Research was ongoing when I first came in, so I'm a fourth year in the lab, and uh, when I'm my first or second year, they had started to collect some data, found these relationships, and there are some other people in the field who have sort of hinted at this could be a possibility that the immune system or inflammation in particular might play a role in self-regulation, but never really sort of tested it directly or never really developed it farther than just kind of introducing the idea. We found this relationship in a few different data sets that we had, so we wanted to do and then run a follow-up study where we took a broader range of measures of inflammation and then also look at a broader range of measures of present-focused decision-making and impulsivity. 
eliciting changes in the inflammatory response can cause massive changes in behavior. Very obvious example of this that everybody's probably experienced is that when you feel sick, you don't want to do anything. You want to stay at home if you maybe aren't as hungry as you usually would be. We tend to think that this happens because some infectious agent like bacteria or virus is making us sick, and that's why we have these symptoms. But we know that a lot of these symptoms are actually brought on by the immune response itself. Your immune system basically incapacitates you so that you just kind of lay there and let this process happen. But there's an evolutionary role here, right? Can you talk about that? There's research showing that your decision-making, what the optimal decision is in any situation. So in this particular example, whether you should prefer, prefer an immediate reward versus a delayed reward is determined by your condition. If your immune system's going, you need, need immediate resources right now to help fuel that response. But also, are you likely to receive the delayed reward if you even wait for it? If you don't know if you're going to be around to realize the health benefits associated with making good choices, you'd be less likely to make those choices. And that's enough since your immune system you know, increases and your inflammation increases in the context of some sort of threat that makes it less likely that you'll be around to, to realize sort of some of those benefits. We believe that also kind of plays into why you sort of shift toward a more immediate gratification, preferring immediate rewards in the context of an inflammatory response. So how do you go about testing this? You gathered a bunch of undergraduates. This is right. Like this is the glory of working on a college campus, right? You, right, you yeah, gathered yeah. a bunch of young, healthy people. And then what did you do to them? So they have to meet all these different standards. They can't be sick. They can't be on birth control. They can't have any chronic illness. You know, they have to not engage in any sort of behaviors that could impact their inflammatory response for 48 hours before participating. And so, like, the biggest hurdle is just getting people into the lab to begin with, because by the time we barrage them with all these questions and prod them, poke them, they already hate us by the time they get here. <laughs> and then it's the matter of drawing their blood and having them go through these the series of sort of impulse-related tasks. What do those and, tasks um, look like? Like, what are you like? Are yeah. you do you put a cookie on a table? For these college students, although cookies are pretty appetizing, they come in and they engage in uh, a few different tasks. One of them is a delayed discounting task, and so we give them a series of choices between hypothetical rewards. So one's always going to be more immediate and smaller, and the other one's going to be some amount larger, but after a delay, so it's like 33 days later. The more immediate rewards that they choose is sort of an indication of present focus. But we also have a couple other tasks. One is we have a temporal discounting task, and so we have them indicate how far away do various time points feel with the idea that if, if the future feels farther away from you, you're more present focused. And then we also have some survey measures as well that get at just in their general life, um, how good are you at delaying gratification? Are you impulsive? All of those things together, we sort of load on this latent factor of impulsivity as, because all of those different components, you know, contribute to this overall idea of, of one's like sort of tendency toward present focused decision making. And then once you take all this together, once you have kind of a baseline of impulsivity, then you're looking at their blood, then you do the numbers, right? And you, right. Yeah. And, and this is the part that blows my mind because the numbers aren't, I mean, they're stark. They're, I mean, it's, it's really clear. There is a pretty significant correlation here. Can you talk about it? Yeah. I mean, the effect sizes are pretty large in all the studies where we've looked at this sort of relationship. And even so in this paper that you're talking about, we had both in vitro measures of inflammation where we isolated the participants' white blood cells and we stimulate them with, with various factors to see how much of inflammation is released in response to this stimulation. And then we also have the in vivo measures in the body. And that's just taking their blood out, isolating the plasma, the part of the blood that has all the good stuff that we want to look at, and then looking at sort of current levels of inflammation. And the relationship between those two different measures of inflammation is actually weaker than the relationship between current levels of inflammation and impulsivity. And so it's really interesting that this seems to be a pretty robust effect that, you know, we found multiple times now. 
And we're following up on it in a couple of different contexts in the context of stress, because we know that stress increases inflammation. Also in the context of immune activation, such as like after a vaccine, to see if impulsivity sort of increases in those contexts that also increase inflammation. That's Jeff Gaston. His team's research on how raised levels of inflammation in our bodies can make us more likely to focus on present rewards and instant gratification was recently published in Nature Scientific Reports. Hey, Jeff, you were listening in as I was chatting with Kelly earlier, and she was listening in to you. Are you ready for an introduction? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Kelly, this is experimental psychologist Jeff Gasson, and Jeff, this is marine mammal biologist Kelly Yakola. It's great to meet you. Good to meet you, too. Hey, Kelly, I know something about you. You haven't always just worked on dolphins. You are a psychologist by training also, isn't that right? That is true. I'll bet your mind was getting blown like mine was while I was chatting with Jeff. Was there a question that formulated in your mind that you wanted to ask him? I have lots of questions that I want to ask him, actually. And some are, some are geeky and some are maybe not so geeky. First, just technically, if I'm understanding your study, you did this across subjects, not within a particular subject. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, this is all cross-sectional in, in this study. So what you found is that healthy people who have more cytokines are more impulsive, yes? Yes, correct. But would you also expect, though, that if I, like, just me, if I sprain my ankle, then I'm going to become more impulsive, yes? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. And so in the research that we've done so far, it seems like the relationship between systemic levels of inflammation and impulsivity is path independent in that it doesn't seem to matter why that person maybe has slightly elevated levels of inflammation in their blood. It's not moderated by any of those factors. They're still you know, demonstrating more impulsivity. In the context like a sprained ankle or something, I wouldn't imagine that you'd get as much of a systemic, maybe depending on how severe it is, uh, systemic inflammatory response. And so... It's, it's hard to say how much of that would actually, you know, get into the brain and sort of lead to some of these functional changes in, in different areas of the brain that induce uh, more present focus decision making. But one thing that I sort of have thought about a lot is that because I've had eight knee surgeries, right? We know that sort of accumulative bodily, bodily damage can sort of lead to this low-grade inflammation. So it's entirely possible that if we continue to find this effect, that environmental factors that increase your inflammation, whether it be injury or chronic stress, could, you know, sort of through that pathway, through the inflammatory pathway, and increase impulsivity and present-focused decision-making. And if, if you then do the things that one would do to reduce inflammation, then right. you would reduce impulsivity? That's uh, a, a huge area for where we're going to take this research. We're you know, doing some experimental work and also some longitudinal work to try to get around the causal question. Um, do you study impulse control, delayed gratification versus immediate gratification in the dolphins you work with? We have not yet looked at that. I actually looked last night because I, I knew that we were going to be talking about this a little bit, and I haven't seen anything that anybody's done with dolphins looking at impulse control. I think it would be really cool, and I'm very interested, which is one of the reasons I was asking. I mean, we see personality differences or dolphinality differences with our dolphins, and some of them we would certainly describe as more impulsive than others, but you could say the same thing about people, too. And so that was sort of where my question was about, are we talking about within, or are we talking about across, or, or both? And Jeffrey, do you think that there's potential for looking at the same question across uh, the, the same way, really, that you did, more or less, about the intersection between impulsivity and inflammation in, in other organisms? 
Yeah, absolutely. We do think that that's you know a, a good place to take the research from here. So we we collaborate with a mouse lab here at TCU, and so they've already started to design a study. We're going to be looking at this in mice, which is you know a lot easier to sort of get at the neural mechanisms. These sort of comparative studies seem to demonstrate that a lot of these relationships hold across different species. And in particular, what I was mentioning earlier with sickness behavior, changes in behavior due to the changes in inflammation have been found in a wide variety of species. How impulsivity and impulse control plays out in these species is going to be widely different, but I would imagine that the role of the immune system in regulating behavior should be something that's probably found across, across species. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in most animals, they hide their sicknesses a whole lot better than humans do, who, you know, where they get a sniffle right. and they go to bed. But most animals don't because they, they can't, because then they're more likely to, to get preyed upon, etc. Um, right. So do you think you'd see the same thing? You know, it's hard to say. So um, in our research, we're kind of looking at levels of inflammation low enough that it's not eliciting any sort of sickness behavior. You know, we haven't looked at acute illness, but even though we're finding this outside the context of sort of these full-blown sickness behavior, you know, I would imagine that it's possible that these relationships could be found in, in other species as well. Unfortunately, there's not really any data on it. I think that's a kind of an exciting place to take this research. And it's sort of just one of the many, you know, really interesting topics to look at uh, between relationships in the immune system and behavior in general. I mean, there's some research on like sensory function and, and even learning. Low levels of inflammation are necessary for learning. If you completely block inflammation, you're not going to, you, you see de deficits in learning. And so I think this is a really Wait, sort of hopefully a spring. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we haven't done any of the research ourselves, but, you know, if you, so interleukin-1 beta, for example, is uh, the, sort of the quintessential pro-inflammatory cytokine. So it coordinates the, the, the inflammatory response. But if you completely block it, um, there's some research that demonstrates that you kind of get deficits in learning from completely bl blocking it. There seems to be sort of a, an inverted U-shape or some sort of nonlinear relationship between inflammation and certain brain functions. Jeffrey, you were listening in while I was chatting with Kelly. What did our conversation invoke in you? What question do you wish that I had asked that I didn't? Uh, it's fascinating stuff. I just like the whole mic drop it, Nick. You don't have to put this in there, of the, of the research just discussing how there have been some assumptions made about, you know, wild populations and populations like captivity, but they really haven't been using perhaps statistically honest comparisons and things like that. And so I'm really fascinated by that. But just kind of on the topic of life expectancy in general, one of the theories we work from in our lab is this theory called life history theory. And the idea is that both within species and between species, you see differences in reproductive strategies and differences in behavior based upon factors that influence mortality risk, particularly if you're in a kind of a harsh, scary environment where you have an elevated risk of mortality as these individuals start reproducing more earlier and they invest less in learning and they invest less in sort of building social capital. And I was wondering if as you see the lifespan of dolphins increase, if you're seeing differences in behavior, anything along those lines. Oh, that's a really good question that I wish I had an answer to, but I don't. Partly because, you know, we, we haven't had dolphins in human care for all that long when you're talking about a long-lived species. We looked at data since 1974, and they were very new then. And dolphins are kept in different facilities that may function differently, and so I'm, I'm not sure we yet have the data to see that. And, of course, we're talking about the same dolphins, the ones that are, you know, obviously the ones that are 50 years old today were the same ones 20 years ago that were 30 years old. So I, I think that will be fascinating to look at in the long term, but I just don't have that data yet. Right. So just in general, um, are there behavioral differences between, you know, dolphins in captivity versus dolphins in the wild? I mean, you know, I, I'd imagine that their mating pool is maybe somewhat more limited when they are in captivity, but perhaps not. 
There's life. some great study, um, great actually series of studies by Kathleen Dzinski and some other people that says when you look at their social behavior and you can look at things like who hangs out with who and how they touch each other, for example, etc. And she has found that they're the same. She does studies both in the wild and in human care, and you see exactly the same types of behaviors. Now, that said, the environment in these two areas is very different, and how they learn as they grow is obviously very different. Like I was saying to Matthew, most of my research has been on dolphin cognition and dolphin behavior. And the way that we do that is we play uh, thinking games with them. We present puzzles, we present games that to us is research, but to them it's games. You can't do that with dolphins in the wild. And so it's just so hard to know how to even ask those kinds of questions. Getting back to mating, in most facilities and probably all facilities, mating is regulated one way or the other because you don't want to have unplanned babies. And so you can either do that through grouping or you can do that through birth control in terms of who impregnates who. But in terms of the actual mating behaviors, those seem to be relatively the same. Kelly, you mentioned the the games that you play. Can can you conceive of a game that you could play with a dolphin that would get at this question of instant versus delayed gratification? Sure. I'm probably not going to describe it right off the bat because uh, we might actually do that study now that I've you know had this little thought in my head. But they have done studies where they've looked at impulse control in various primates and also, I believe, in parrots. And, it, and it's set up, just like Jeff was saying earlier, where you set up a situation where they can learn that they can either get a small treat now or a big treat later. And you, you know, you see what they do. And, and certainly, it, if it has been done in other animals, we could do it in dolphins as well. Well, if you do, I hope I get to be in the footnotes. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. That's a promise. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are running short on time. Kelly Yakola, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks for having me. And Jeff Gasson, thank you. Thank you. I had a great time. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.